Today's businesses are on a vigilant watch for threats in an ongoing cyber war. It's time to get real-world solutions to protect and secure your valuable business information anytime, anywhere. Welcome to Cybersecurity America with Josh Nicholson. You're about to gain special access into a world of restricted information and a backstage pass to the inner sanctum of cybersecurity operations. Here's your host, Joshua Nicholson. So Microsoft August 2023 patch Tuesday. A couple warnings, two zero days, 87 flaws. Now we're waiting for September's patch Tuesday should be coming out sometime tomorrow and right around the 12th of September. But in August, just uh, we had two zero days, 87 different flaws. They're saying Microsoft had update for those 87 flaws, including actively exploited and 23 remote code execution vulnerabilities. While 23 RCE bugs were fixed, Microsoft only rated six as critical. And the number of bugs in each vulnerability category is listed kind of uh, below. So they, it looks like there was 18 elevation of privilege vulnerabilities. There were three security feature bypass vulnerabilities, 23 remote code execution vulnerabilities, 10 information disclosure vulnerabilities, 8 denial of service, 12 spoofing. Now, these counts do not include 12 Microsoft Edge or Chromium vulnerabilities fixed earlier this month. Two actively exploited vulnerabilities and on Patch Tuesday. The patch fixes these two, which exploited known attacks and they were publicly disclosed. And it looks like the actively exploited vulnerabilities, ADV 230003, is something you want to take a look at. It's Microsoft Office Defense In-Depth Update. It's public disclosure. Microsoft has released an Office Defense In-Depth Update to fix a patch bypass of the previously mitigated and actively exploited CVE 2023-36884, which was a remote code execution vulnerability. It was a flaw. Now that, uh, now that flaw allowed threat actors to create specifically, uh, specially crafted Microsoft Office documents that could bypass the mark of the web or MOTW security feature, causing files to be opened without displaying a security warning and performing remote code injection. Now, the vulnerability was actively exploited by the Romcom hacking group, who was previously known to deploy the industrial spy ransomware in attacks. Now, the ransomware operation has since rebranded as Underground, under which they continue to export victims. Looks like the flaw was discovered by Paul Raskaneners and Tom Lancaster with uh, Velexity. So it looks like CVE 2023-38180. It was also .NET and Visual Studio denial of service vulnerability. Microsoft has fixed that. It was uh, actively exploited as well. It caused a DOS situation, denial of service attack on .NET applications and Visual Studio. Other recent updates, it looks like, from other companies, Adobe released security updates for Microsoft Acrobat, Reader, Commerce, and Dimension. AMD released numerous security updates for new hardware attacks and flaws. It looks like Cisco Systems released security updates for the Cisco Secure web application as Cisco AnyConnect. I was seeing a lot of different reports and chatter about vulnerabilities being exploited on their VPNs. And it definitely looks like Google released the Android August 2023 updates to fix actively exploited vulnerabilities. There's a new inception attack on AMD Zen CPUs. Looks like Avanta fixed a remote unauthenticated API access vulnerability affecting their mobile iron core. And it looks like Microsoft fixed a few flaws in Power Platform custom connectors. Of course, we had MoveIt. Uh, MoveIt was a big file transfer platform. They released security updates, uh, fixes critical security, uh, SQL injection bugs, and two other less severe vulnerabilities. You also had PaperCut. That was another one that had a critical vulnerability tracked to CVE 2023-39143. Looks like SAP had a release in August as well. VMware fixed numerous flaws in the VMware Horizon server. And it looks like Zoom fixed about 15 different vulnerabilities. 
There's also a report you can see from the CISA, the NSA and the FBI, Five Eyes Cybersecurity, shared a list of the 12 most exploded vulnerabilities throughout 2022. You can find that on, on their website, and it does seem that is a good comprehensive list. Looks like some of the ones that came up to the top of the list for those 12 most exploited is going to be that Fortinet CVE 2018-13379. It's one of the ones on the top list there. It's an SSL VPN credential exposure, and it affects the Fort iOS and Fort Proxy product of Fortinet. I actually been in a live IR related to a vulnerable Fortinet. Now, on today's podcast, I have a really a special guest. The guy I just met, Joshua Copeland. Now, Josh, Joshua Copeland is a battle-tested cybersecurity expert with a wealth of experience in the field. Now, currently, he's serving as the director of cyber at AT&T. And he plays a pivotal role in guiding security solutions for the state, local, tribal, and territorial, or is it the SLTT organization? Now, prior to his tenure in T, Joshua worked at GDIT, focusing on cloud platform and cloud platform security within the federal space. Within an impressive 20-year career in the United States Air Force, he retired having honed his leadership skills and amassed extensive experience in team management and compliance security. He's renowned for his thought-provoking viewpoints on cybersecurity, hiring practices, leadership, and breaking into the field. Now, Josh is widely recognized as a purveyor of unpopular opinion, uh, he's also additionally he's an adjunct professor at Tulane University with a focus on teaching cybercrime and cyber leadership. Welcome to the show, Josh. Really great to have you today. Thanks for having me, Josh. And having a alumnus, I graduated Tulane as well in 2010. And I think it was before they had those different cybersecurity uh, programs over there. You and I had talked about how mm-hmm. Tulane has progressed in that side. But did that cover a lot of your background, Josh? What What have you been up to lately? Lately, it's been a lot of just digging into the SLTT area and trying to see where the gaps are between where they need to be and where they are. Unfortunately, you see a lot of stuff in the SLTT market where it grew up very organically. Whoever the smart guy was in the room 20, 30 years ago said, we needed this capability, and they just did what worked. Not necessarily what was secure or what was the standard. It was It gave them the thing that they wanted to do. So now... We're here in 2023, and we have to look back and go, how do we fix this? But how do we fix it in a way that doesn't break what they're doing now, but then moves them to that secure platform that they need to be? Because ultimately, they're handling all of our data. We're all citizens. State, local government is there to support us. They collect our data. They do our stuff. So it's a great kind of field to get into to see what's next in the, the field. Yeah, I guess so. When you think about it, you're actually running society, right? In the in those areas, how does water treatment plants work? How does in those small local municipalities, all that that really is critical to life in the United States? Huh? Yeah, when you look at most small cities, they will have one, maybe five IT people who are running their police department, their fire services, the water services, all the tax collection. All of these services that you just take for granted just work and do the things that you need to do. And they all have online portals now because that's the expectation. So there's a lot of work to be done to make sure that's safe and secure and protecting us the way we expect our government to protect us. Yeah. And what's been your opinion on how prepared most governments are when you look at the city of New Orleans or the city of Baton Rouge or here in Charlotte, the city of Charlotte, North Carolina? They just can't pay really for a lot of cyber talent. How prepared are they in many ways? Or are they just as risky at the supply chain as everybody else is right now? They Um, probably use a lot of third parties. They cobble them together. And your thoughts? Yeah, it's a lot of homegrown stuff. It's stuff that was put together because this was the solution that worked. I think the great example is the ransomware that hit the city of Dallas uh, a few weeks ago, where it ended up being multi-million dollar because it's not a security first mindset. It's a capability first mm. security when we get around to it. And that's changing over the course of the entire landscape. But you have 20, 30, 40 years of technology and infrastructure that you now have to re-engineer to be that secure solution. So it's costly. You have a lot of folks who don't necessarily understand what the second and third order effects are until something bad happens. It's 
the age-old plague in our field of there's no money until a bad event occurs and then money falls from the sky. It's being yeah. able to communicate in ways that our business side of the house or our political leaders or our appointees, the electorate, understand what security really means, where it's not viewed as a cost center, where it's viewed as something that is critical to the overarching service, is the, the special talent that great CISOs and VCISOs and you know security vendors and leaders have. Yeah, that's the key there. I think it, when I looked at it from the other side, not being a cybersecurity professional, I'm looking at these executives who maybe they have an MIS degree and they're now put into the cybersecurity role and have to make decisions on things and they don't understand really the risk management aspects of it versus the tech versus the just in, having some cooler, find a better way to find something. And I think the managers who don't have those backgrounds they just get kind of shell shock. I don't understand how this really impacts the business. All I see is big numbers for tech, different technology platforms and all. Is that common where it's just management? It seems like information security is the one thing that you can spend infinity and still have the same risk as everybody else out there in a way. You reduce the likelihood, but it just seems like how, how do you connect it to? Yeah, it really comes down to talking in languages they understand, risk and dollars. You know, those are what I deem universal languages, no matter what your silo in the industry, whether you're public sector, whether you're private sector, whether you're business side or your IT, we can all talk risk and dollars. Mm -hmm. Now, when I tell you that this server needs to have five nines versus four nines uptime, if you're a business person, that means absolutely nothing to you. But when I tell you that the difference between four nines and five nines is $100,000 in income, magically the light comes on and you go, okay, this makes sense. This is why I'm going to spend this money because this now makes me this money. Even when you're talking about doing things like increasing your tech posture and your security posture, okay, what does that do for us? Where's the net gain back to us? And we can spin it as, well, when we're more secure, we're more sellable to our organizations. If you're a business-oriented side, we're mm-hmm. protecting our constituent if you're government we could have the possibility of reducing our cybersecurity insurance premium because we've now spent this, we meet these criteria, which makes us inherently more secure, which means we can reduce our premium. You know, there are ways you can start taking what you're doing and monetizing it and taking it to risk and going, this is why we're doing this. This is how we're doing this. And this is where the net gains are going to be. Developing these efficiencies instead of having three different email platforms, moving to an 0365, we're going to be able to reduce our overall cost, increase the amount of capabilities. And when you start playing with that as your functionality, rather than the bits and bytes, people really get it. Yeah, that makes sense. And I I would say I see a lot of cybersecurity projects that really need to be implemented, like core high-risk things need to be done now. And they go nowhere. And it's mostly because the technical engineers or the people that are trying to describe the risk to be mitigated can't do it in a very effective manner. And so when they go up to get approvals or they go to get just work with other team members to get some cohesion on it, it's not security just asking, but IT and I talked to audit and all three of us agree that this thing needs to be done. I've seen where it's the most effective communicators and managers that have the biggest impact of change because they have to get agreement with multiple stakeholders versus just convincing yourself of what needs to happen. Uh, That's easy. Everybody can, you can have a lot of smart guys out there that can figure out what to do and how to harden something and how to put a security control. I, I don't think that's always the problem. The problem is how do you institute change within the organization, get agreement, especially when you're going across three different departments and they all have three different strategies and different budgets and can't even report up to different executives. And then you got to get them all three somehow to work together to, to implement that. To me, it seems like one of the bigger challenges are, of our time. Would you agree or what are your thoughts? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I'm a big proponent that the second you, you know, utter any piece of jargon, you've now lost your audience. If you're a CISO or an information security leader, and that's because You've ceased talking languages that everybody understands. They don't care how the magic happens behind the curtain. They care that it happens and what you're doing to make their life better, easier, more cost-effective, cheaper, and frankly, to do their job better. 
So when you can start communicating that effectively and you can go to your compliance folks and say, if I'm instituting this hardening tool, it gives me automated reports, which in turn allows you to have real-time monitoring of your compliance, which reduces your workload. Now we can start talking about combining budgets. We can start talking about, you know, efficiencies of in that institutional scale that you're not going to get if you start talking straight jargon and say, I want to introduce this product because it does automatic staking and will do this thing in the third and they just glass over. What are you saying? I'm going to help you do your job by instituting this product that's going to do these capabilities. That's when you get that kind of big consensus and buy-in. And tell me if you experience this as well. I, I use analogies with everything. I have to, especially when I'm reporting up to different executives, different customers. It's not just the CISO or the senior direct, security director we're dealing with. We're dealing with finance people. We're dealing with purchase people. We're dealing with all kinds of different people that want their own pound of flesh, so to speak, when you're dealing with different solutions and all. And it's like, how do you get them all on the same page on What's your path forward? What are some of the things we're trying to do first? What's what's overkill? What's rudimentary and so forth? Yeah, I'm a big proponent of kind of storytelling as your means of selling. Mm-hmm. Um, and by selling, I just mean getting buy-in because ultimately you are selling whatever your solution is, whatever you're proposing. You're trying to get folks to say, yes, I want to commit to this and put my name to it. So it absolutely is a bit of a sales game and using analogies and tying it back to things that people intrinsically understand makes that easier because now they actually get it. And when they get it, the security stuff makes sense. I'll tell you, like one, I do a lot of incident commander work. So certified GCIH, I do a lot of IR commander. We have a lot of events. You know what caused most cybersecurity events that we're dealing with? It's configuration issues. It's something out there that was misconfigured and some S3 box bucket was open or somebody is not using credentials properly. They're using their domain admin account to check email and they're clicking on links. It's abuse of best practices, what we're seeing. And it's over and it's over and it's over again. And in some cases, there was a shift from, I don't know if you remember this, where there used to be cybersecurity guys. We used to run the firewalls. I'm Cisco PIC certified, checkpoint certified. We used to configure and do egress filtering and we used the firewalls as security devices. Then when the advent of MSPs and everything shift to using managed service providers, all of a sudden the firewalls moved to the network service guys and they saw it as a router. And what is their philosophy? I want packets to flow. I, I know I was a Cisco CCMP. I'm an engineer and I knew that's their mentality. And that's all, and, and we've seen several breaches because firewalls weren't upgraded and there was a, a zero day on a Fortinet or something to that effect. So it does seem we've gotten better in some of the low-hanging fruit, but we still have so much further to go, especially in cloud. I know a lot of your background is cloud, but where do you see? I think configuration management is just getting worse in the cloud because the boundary disappeared. There, there is really no perimeter anymore. What are your thoughts? Yeah, and that's been particularly post-COVID. The largest challenge for most organizations is understanding what your perimeter is because it's super nebulous. Now it's not just that super well-defined between the four walls of your building. You have a one point of egress and entrance into your enclave. Now you have multiple networks. You have the Starbucks down the street. You have the McDonald's. You have the hotel that the person's working out of. You have their house with all their kids' devices on it. You have all this extra infrastructure that you have to make sure that you're accounting for and that you're doing the appropriate things to kind of Make sure that you're doing the right things. During COVID, a lot of organizations, because of volume, enabled split tunneling. And while that's great for a lot of things where it reduces the bandwidth that you're putting through your VPN, increases the amount of people that can use that, and you're, in theory, getting the right stuff to the right place. But now I'm also introducing the wild internet onto my endpoint device. Yeah. And now I take that endpoint device and go into my office and connect to my network proper where I'm not having any split tunneling done. And I've introduced all these extra things. So what am I doing to mitigate those risks? And to your point, configuration management. Am I doing the appropriate patching? Do I have the right level of EDR, XDR on my devices? Am I doing IDS, IPS? 
Yeah. Is my sim even configured to collect these logs and do analysis and aggregation on this? Configuration is absolutely huge. A lot of organizations, when you go, how are you configuring your endpoint devices? And they go, we use SCCM or let the systems do Windows update. Okay, have you done any system hardening? Have you done STIG or CIS benchmarks? And um, they get the glass eyes of, what do you mean? Yeah. And there are some really great tools out there that do exactly that, that are super cheap, that are super affordable. And that's one of those super easy kills that you can do to really get a huge security posture gain, but you don't realize what it is. Or what's more frustrating is that they don't understand how to do it. So they'll get that checklist and they go, I don't even know how to implement this or which things I should do. What's it going to do? What's it going to break if I tick this box? So for fear of breaking something, they do nothing. And there are some great tools that help you do that. And like your point is that the information's out there to do this. It's just using that and being able to interpret what that means in your environment and just execute it and not being so scared of it. I can tell you that uh, there was this one client we were doing work with and the recommendation was to shut down legacy SMB V1 that they had running for some legacy systems. And we said, we got to configure it's a GPO and you configure the GPO to change it and use SMB uh, V3 only. And I could tell you it took two months of research and they still didn't get it done. And it was a simple GPO setting. And I think what happens is when you don't have the real understanding of the ramification of something or some of the changes to do in your environment, you like a deer in the headlight, you get into analysis paralysis. And I think sometimes you have to be not afraid to break things. When I was doing firewalls and having to implement egress filtering, I knew I had to do it on traffic that was not being filtered at all. So I knew it was going to break things. And I knew there would be some browser updates that are HTTP, HTTPS outbound. And I knew things were, were going to break. And I had to prepare the organization for that. And I think it has to do with your culture. If the organization is so sensitive to change and downtime and so forth, like if you're in a hospital or in, and sometimes in these banking environments, it puts this organizational fear in you to actually strive to secure things in lockdown. You, you're doing like you said earlier, I'm afraid of breaking something, so I'm not going to try and implement something. And at the same time, I think management just doesn't want the Wild West and you making changes and causing outages over the weekend. I just want it tested properly and some logic behind it. And you bring up a good point with hospitals. They're highly regulated industries and you have devices that are running IT software, but they're running medical devices. A great example is a lot of x-ray machines are using Windows XP computers that have never been patched, never been... To this day, they're running... To this day, they're still running... Wow. And the process to actually do something to update that or fix those is so arduous because you have to get FDA approval to make any changes to it, even something as simple as a Windows update. That's a six-month lead time. You're not going to be able to have a healthy patch cycle for that. So how do you handle those things? You have to figure out ways to mitigate your risk. We know that this risk exists. We know that we're not going to be able to change it. But how do we make it to where it's less impactful? They just have modular OSs on drives and then swap them out. If And I just would patch one drive, swap it out, boot the MRI machine up. And if it works, it does. if it doesn't, swap the hard drives out again or something. What is it that's, it can't be that simple. I'm sure it's pretty, yeah. a lot more intense. And it goes back to, it's life-saving and medical equipment. So mm-hmm. there's a high standard for reliability for those things. It's the same reason why you have water systems that are still running on Windows 2000 servers. That have been rebooted twice in the last 30 years. I've seen that. I, I've yeah. seen a place that manufacturing that were getting their machines or replacements off of eBay. They, they were so old. They were running NT351. And that was like three years ago, four years ago. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Tell me, adjunct professor at Tulane. I loved my Tulane experience. I had a great time. I did 10 years of night school there. Uh, I got my degree in computer information systems were a minor in telecommunication. And I thought it was great. The the, the best learning I had was from adjunct professors. Uh, I know, I, I think I was telling you, I had a Java class there, I think at the Elmwood campus one time. And what was great is that it wasn't just some professor who knew the Java programming language and, and has done C++ and was able to uh, teach Java from an academic perspective. 
the adjunct professor had real world experience, did Java programming during the day. And to me, it was just, it was like a com- combination of IT training and collegiate training at the same time. What, what are y'all guys doing over at Tulane nowadays? We have a wonderful staff of adjuncts as well as professors of practice. So folks who have been in the industry for years and years and then have hung up their full-time role as a IT professional to switch over to more of a full-time teaching role, but they still have that 25 years plus of background, which really provides a great kind of springboard, particularly in cybersecurity IT, because all so much of the stuff that we do, tying it back to the real world is absolutely huge. I can have you do labs all day long, but when I talk to you about the labs and I tell you, This is how I've used this in the real world as a job. Things magically start clicking for the students. They actually go, oh, okay, I'm going to pay attention to what I'm doing. I'm really going to get more out of this. I love having non-traditional students like yourself in class because it provides that rich experience of not a room full of 18, 19, 20-year-olds who have never done anything. Now I have a room with some 18, 19-year-olds, some folks that are in their 30s, so folks that are in their 40s, career changers, they have all these different backgrounds that kind of meld together and say, I can give you different perspectives on this. And those perspectives help build a better course material. You're learning, I think, just as much from your fellow students as you are from any of your professors. Yeah, no, that's exciting. And and I I think having a focus in cybersecurity where when I was in, it was more IT and software development and so forth. And we had a few security classes, but just see a focus towards that. And just coming back from DEF CON and throughout my career, I think cybersecurity, if the kids understood the problem-solving nature of it, that's really what it is. Cybersecurity is like an escape-the-room electronic in many ways, especially when doing these capture-the-flags. And I think once they understand that, because I've talked to my kids, I've talked to other people before, and are you interested in cyber? And the first thing they all come, I'm not very good at math. It's great. Neither am I. What are you talking about? It was just this concept that you need to be doing calculus all day long in cybersecurity. I was like, I'm telling you, what math I use all day? It's called addition, subtraction, multiplication. So I think there's this fear too, that if you're not hardcore technical, like I came up the technical routes. That's all they want in cybersecurity anyway. And I could be further from the truth. There's GRC roles, there's governance risk compliance, there's risk management roles, project management roles. There's all kinds of things that don't require hardcore cybersecurity skill sets. Just in your background, what are some of the different areas you see a lot of people that may not be technical that, that would want to go into cybersecurity? What do you think they focus on? Yeah, to your point, GRC is an excellent area to start if you don't have a deep technical background or you're not that kind of nerdy kid that was building your own computer. All right. Because it allows you to learn it through immersion. You're getting in and you're reading the regulations in the NIST 853 catalog of controls. And then you're talking to these experts in those areas and you slowly get this understanding of that technology. And it's super easy to jump from GRC into a more technical role. I think a really great place to start for folks coming into cybersecurity is a SOC. There are so many different skill sets that you can have coming into that that don't require you to be super technical. I love getting formal medics, whether they be nurses, EMTs, medics from the military, even pharmacists coming into SOCs because they inherently understand triage. They understand how to look for what's the worst thing, stop the bleed, and move on to the next thing in a very regimented fashion. manner. Yeah. The same thing with folks coming in from law enforcement. They understand investigation. They understand things like chain of custody. Same thing with firefighters. They understand that risk management matrix inherently in their head. They can go, that's bad, but this is way worse. Let me go over here and focus on this so then I can go over here. So you have all these areas that kind of have different overlapping skill sets. The best analyst I ever had work for me, their undergraduate degree was in marketing. And people go, what does marketing have to do with cybersecurity? And then I'll point them to social engineering. Look at what the actual requirements are for social engineering, Mm -hmm. and then look at what marketing is. They're exactly the same thing. They're all about how to get some person to do the thing you want them to do. 
Marketing is generally buy your product. Social engineering is let me in, click the button, something along that effect. But the skill sets are exactly the same. So there are lots of non-technical skill sets that make you really good at cybersecurity. No, I, I think it helps you in cybersecurity too. If you're a business-focused person that can help, especially when we're doing some of these bigger business cases, we're doing bigger customers, it, it requires multiple resources and jobs and people. I think there's a lot of benefit of having outside skill sets. And it's not just about uh, hardcore technical, like you were saying, it was more about that hacker mindset where you understand. I think one of my podcasts I had was with Bruce Schneier, and he was he wrote this book called Hacker's Mindset. And one of the things he was just talking about is like accountants are always looking for tax loopholes, right? That's the same as a cybersecurity person who's looking for loopholes in software. And and how do you get that kind of mentality? And how do you train someone in school? I think it's easy to say this is how you write this snippet of code, or this is how you write this firewall rule here. But how do you teach people this mindset and the ability to put it all together? It just seems like experience is the only thing you can do. What are your thoughts? I love that you brought up accountants because one of the tidbits I like to tell folks is that the SOC 2 audit, the big thing that everyone talks about when you're looking at third-party vendors, was created by CPAs. It is owned and managed by the CPA professional organization accountants created that because intrinsically accountants understand compliance they understand risk and they're detail oriented you know what that sounds like a cybersecurity engineer it's the same skill sets just a different focus they're on money and then cybersecurity is on the tools that you use to do those things no it's interesting that when you put it that way how they overlap and how they're so necessary like I've done GRC type work before, especially when I was at Wells Fargo. It was a group information security officer and I had a team of about 25, 26 there. And so we had some elements of GRC and was risk management, but it it almost seems like when you're those bigger organizations that it's just, you're getting paperwork done and you're pushing a process. You're just this wheel and this cog, but you're not really impacting as much as you can. And I don't think people realize how much you actually do, how the GRC programs that go on top of what us cybersecurity people do is absolutely necessary because there's just so many things to do. You lock down these systems in this way, put these controls, having a good framework that maps to the business risk so you can concentrate on make what's important is where I see GRC. It's almost the radar system of what you should be doing that's out there for your future system, your future state. Without GRC, you're just fighting fires all day long, right? Yeah, GRC, I like to look at it from the perspective of it tells you where the best place to spend your money is. Yeah, Where are your weak spots? Where are your risks? It helps you identify what your risks actually are. Because unless you can quantify what your risks are, what the actual impact to your business or organization is, you're just throwing money at cool toys. Which, if you're in a position to do awesome, I love cool toys, give me the new shiny thing the most expensive Ferrari on the lot. Yeah. But the reality is most of us can't do that. You have to find the right tool for the right job to fix the right amount of risk. And to do that, you have to intrinsically understand what your risk is, why it's a risk, and what mitigations you might have around that. And then judiciously get the right product that fits your requirements. I might not need the 900-pound gorilla in the room splunk for a sim. I might be able to just use an elk stack. I have the right skill sets to build that out. And understanding that and what my risks are means I can recoup that money and spend it on something else that I do have risk associated with. Yeah, it makes sense. It's, it's like super prioritization or really getting your prioritization right and what matters the most. Okay, so let's say I am someone who's interested in the GRC side of the house that means i can i get into cybersecurity just with a business degree in grc does is that a good fit if i have a business degree if if one of our listeners is in that background and they go really want to get in in the cybersecurity or information security and but man all i got a business degree they don't that's not really going to help out that's truly you could map that over to a grc career how would one do that um really take a look at any of the grc certifications whether it's through ISACA, ISC Squared, GRCP, any one of those. And you can really 
draw one-to-one conclusions between the different pieces of your degree. And even if you have a non-business degree, I'm a big proponent that degrees, particularly undergraduate degrees, don't tell me a whole lot about you because technology, being in the academic space now, you're teaching stuff that's typically anywhere from three to five years old. So by the time that something you learned as a freshman, by the time you graduate, assuming that you're a full-time traditional student, is anywhere from seven to 10 years old, that's a long time in IT space, unless it's those foundational items. So what a degree really tells me is that you can do long-term project management, that you can work in a team, that you can do things that fail and recover, you you fail forward, you're able to do all this long-term project management stuff. That's to me what an undergraduate degree really sells about you, is that you're able to set long-term goals and you're able to do milestones and achievements in between there. Because how much do you remember from your freshman year? Probably nothing. Mine was part-time, so I had to go part-time. So it was a a good two-year process uh, for my freshman. Yeah, but not as much. But yeah, you're right. It's about project management, your ability to execute on different things, and the excitement of learning. I I found it phenomenal uh, experience because I just love to learn. I'm addicted to that learning process. Yeah, I'm with you. I have a lot of degrees and more certifications than I can count. Mm. I'm always, I want to learn more. I want to know more about the field because cybersecurity is one of those few things in life where the more you learn about it, the less you realize you know about it. Yeah. Because there's always something new. There's always something interesting. There's always the le- next latest advancement in either malware or technology to fight that. So oh, it yeah. creates a environment where Continuous learning is not only encouraged, but required. Part of mine is like when you're consulting customers on their strategy moving forward, and now it's okay, so Microsoft Defender, okay, and if you have this contract with Defender that gives you this, you even have to keep up with the different solutions that are common in these enterprises. My wife and I, we bought a laptop for my son. He started Java programming. So I have a son who's a mechanical engineering student at UNC Charlotte. I have another one who's computer science, UNC Charlotte. And I have my third uh, son who is starting Java programming now. And so it's fun because when Java was a primary language as well as C++ when I was at Tulane. And so it's easy to connect with the kids on this common language and, and be able to do programs and then understand it and how it fits in. And it also, I think, separates people who want to code full time because my nephews, hey, this is great. And then I got one of my sons are like, this sucks. I don't want to code all day long. I don't want to. I don't want to do that, but I wanted them to at least understand what coding was like. I didn't mind it. C++ was pretty fun to me. I enjoyed it. I didn't like the fact it would, when we first started Tulane, what they did is HTML. And when I did Java, they wouldn't allow you to use an IDE interface. The professor, you had to use a Java compiler and notepad. And when we did the HTML class, it was just a browser and notepad. And I thought that was ridiculous because there's all these IDEs that allow you to drag things over and so forth. But the professor was really strict. They were saying, no, you not to use the IDE. I'll know about it and so forth. And so we didn't. And it made it so much harder, but the, I learned it so much better. Like I learned HTML to write it from scratch in Notepad because why you didn't have an IDE. I learned to do Java with having cryptic exceptions get thrown somewhere online 114 and you got to go figure out what in the world does that what happened because you just have notepad and a compiler and you just use java to compile it and you run it on your jvm and it was it made it more difficult you didn't really understand why the professors were doing that at the time but at the end of it you saw the benefit of it and then how ides were just in many ways junk they just threw things in and automatically made things and I don't know. I thought that was great from a cybersecurity perspective too. strip all the different tools to make it easy. Can you understand how to just do this from scratch? Yeah. And I'm absolutely on par with you on that. I'll show my age and my first language that I learned was HTML3 in Notepad and then COBOL for the Air Force. There was no IDE for that. That was literally you just sat there with Notepad and hammered away at code. And I so also learned at that point, I'm not a coder. And how long were you in the Air Force? 20 years. 20 years. Thank you for your service, sir. Thank you for yours. And where um, were you stationed at? I was stationed uh, at McGuire Air Force Base in New Jersey and then Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana. Barksdale's. Wow. So those two bases in those 20 years? Yep. Two bases in 20 years. It, it, it was an anomaly. 
the same. Yeah, I did. So I was three years in Camp Pendleton, California, and then I was a year in 29 Palms, California, in the middle of the desert. And that is a horrible place to experience in the summer uh, time. I could tell you that much. And then I did a year over in Okinawa, Japan before separating. I am familiar with 29 Palms. I was actually born in 29 Palms. Oh, really? Mom and dad are Marines. So. Ain't that something? I have now, that is twice now. I have a, a friend of mine who was in the Marine Corps with me and her son, her and her husband are both Marines and their sons are going in the Air Force. My son is going in the Air Force. And it's amazing. It seems like it's a much bigger decision than it used to be. I had wanted to go in the Marines and I was told, no, you're not doing that. Mm-hmm. And they took me to an Air Force base and I went, oh, okay, now I understand why. That's why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the same thing. The one thing I, my son, he tells me, he goes, Dad, how are you in the Marines? You wanted to kick down the doors and shoot the terrorists in the head. And I was like, yeah, I want to be the guy in the tent that tells people like you to go kick the doors. And I said, what do you want to be a general? You can't start off as a general. It doesn't make sense. But he wants to, he likes the idea of strategy. He likes the idea of command and and control. And so he's going to start in his senior year. He's in the ROTC program. He's got a scholarship for it. So he'll be a a lieutenant probably in in about a year and a half. He'll be uh, active duty Air Force as a lieutenant. So we're really proud of him. And the, the biggest thing he's learning along with ROTC was just organization, was how to communicate, how to put people together, how to come up with a vision and then a strategy for execution. And it was interesting. So you would think I didn't, obviously I went to Marine Corps boot camp, but I never went through an ROTC program like that, which was academically infused. So it's weird for me. You go to college. I had military and then I went to college. I didn't have it both at the same time. So you wonder what they're teaching nowadays. And I don't know, I was really impressed with the Air Force ROTC and UNC Charlotte because it really put a level of responsibility. Some of these kids that you see, well, they're always full of excuses. Like, it's not my responsibility. The professor didn't do this. I don't know about that. They don't take ownership for things. And I think that's the what the military teaches us. And the, the, I, I like that the ROTC and infused in it is there's no excuses for anything. Even if there was traffic and you couldn't make it to class, you should that meant you should have left earlier. Now, sometimes there are valid excuses for things occurring, but allowing yourself to do that is a crutch to have that valid excuse. And it just drives mediocrity. I'm still, I've been retired now five years and I'm still the 15 minutes early is on time. On time is late guy. My family hates it because I'm always like, we got to go. We got to go. Like, and mm. we get there and we're the first people there. Oh yeah. When, you know, military, how they used to go. Okay. The Colonel said that uh, we're going to be out here at formation at 0800. And then the, the captains go, okay, we want everybody out here by 04745. And then the staff sergeants go, no, I want to make sure everybody is here. So the captain can review before the Colonel. And then it just before it was like four in the morning, three hours before the event and you're hanging around. It was just ridiculously early to early. So each layer can cover themselves. I absolutely intimately remember doing those and having a bag drag at 3 a.m. that really wasn't until 8. And yeah, out there just sleeping on your luggage. Imagine if you did that in the civilian world. To me, the Marine Corps was a hurry up and wait all the time. You're running, you got packs on, you're getting over it. And then all of a sudden we're sitting for four hours and we knew it. I was like, wait a minute. We knew the bus hadn't even left Arizona yet, and yet we're running like our hair's on fire to that because it was always run quickly to the next place. We should never be waiting on you. And the frustration that builds. Can you imagine that in the civilian world? You keep everybody up at two in the morning to do, I don't know, something like compliance training that doesn't mean anything and how frustrated they'd be the next day. It is definitely a different mentality between folks that have served and folks who have not. You can definitely tell... The, uh, the level of frustration when you see those kind of things on the civilian side of the folks who are prior military just go, all right, here we go. Buckle in. Yeah. And I, and I think the, when you look at it from a GRC risk compliance perspective, I think uh, having that military mindset or that program management type mindset is really helpful because that's how a lot of these GRP, GRC programs get managed. I like the fact of having uh, an audit type function. Like when you run big teams and you expect certain activity to be happening, I expect all changes on the firewall to be documented in the ticket and that they get closed in the time manner. 
how do I know if I get eight firewall engineers? Is that really happening? Okay, so it's almost to the point where the captain gives the direction of where the policy and where we need to steer from an organization and may say it in a conference call, but how does he actually know that everybody, like a flock of birds, are doing that? And I really have a problem sometimes of knowing for sure that attestation, that's really her. And that's where I see GRC really helping out, especially in an audit type function that necessarily doesn't have to go to auditors, uh, just is an audit function for me as the information security lead, but and uh, my ability to, to check in on policy. Like, how do you enforce policy? If you say, I want this done in a certain manner, this uh, adheres to this certain risk. If people aren't following it, you really have a security program just based on trust that everybody does the right thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. One thing, one of the big things for me when I look at GRC as a whole is continuous monitoring should be either by word. Hmm. The ability to validate on a routine basis that you're doing the things you're supposed to do the way you're supposed to do is what GRC is all about. Right. Just because I configured it today the right way, how do I know that policy has not drifted? Someone has not gone and made an illicit change. That's where your GRC function really prize you that capability to validate and continuously monitor. Or if there was an exception to policy, like you had to, everything's got to be proxied except for, hey, this one thing because it's broken and we can't and the government doesn't allow. And all right, so there's an exception to that. But Three years later, I called it cybersecurity anthropology. Like you go back years later and you see some change somewhere and you go, why did somebody do that? And you have no idea that change happened because three years ago, somebody was troubleshooting an F5 or something happened, why they do that and put some exception in there. We had this one major oil and gas company. We came in to do an assessment because they were doing penetration testing on some of the hosts and nothing was getting caught. Nothing was being alerted. They just couldn't figure out why their gold image wasn't working. And we tore it apart. And the, and they had McAfee exceptions from years ago that excluded all kind of folders, the template. They were trying to get some app to work years ago, some client server app, and essentially excluded all the directories from McAfee. So it was maybe one that McAfee was actually looking at. And nothing else. No, we never fire. It was anything could run. It was a completely essentially disabled. Uh, and we were able to find it and then take out all the exceptions. Now, when we pointed it out and showed that you have configured your exceptions throughout the host and it is ineffective and the product's not working at all. And we have to report back to your risk registry that this control that you were saying mitigated this risk of malware is actually ineffective and we're now putting you in notice that you can no longer rely this to mitigate that risk. And then it causes all these audit issues related towards it when you say that, right? Yeah. And when you look at it from the bigger perspective, those kind of attestations matter. There was a case for cyber insurance mm. where the insurer was suing their insured because they had done their attestation saying that they had MFA. And this is a case where words matter. Yeah. They did have MFA. They did not have MFA enforced. And they had a breach that was caused because they did not have MFA enforced. Yeah. So the cybersecurity insurance issuer went, you didn't have it enforced, therefore you didn't have MFA. We don't want to pay. Yeah. You know, and that's one of those things where is what you're doing really what you're doing? Your example, yeah, you had antivirus, but it wasn't doing anything. It wasn't being enforced the way it should have been enforced. Mm. You have MFA, but is it actually enforced? Are you requiring that to be done versus it's just something that is there? And that's where compliance, I'm a big component of compliance is not security. They are not equal words. Compliance is the minimum baseline in which you should start your security program, not the goal of your security program. Because if you just do the exercise in box ticking, you're going to miss huge gaps in your organization. Yeah, I, I think compliance really is the way you ought to think about that when you structure how you ought to think about going across about the problem, not the end problem itself. Like compliance doesn't... Um, 
directly affect security, but it's at least, what are your thoughts? The way you structure how best to think about it when you're describing it in, in, I don't know, is it more like a way of thinking you think GRC is that helps out? Yeah, I think GRC provides you the framework and the direction of what you need to do. You're still going to have to make very nitty-gritty detailed decisions based off of your individual use case. Because I could take a disastig and you know harden a box, but then I'm not going to be able to really use that box. There's going to be things that are turned off that I need turned off. But I need to have the smart people in the room going, yes, this needs to be turned on, and here's why, and document why that's being done. So three years from now, we go back and go, why are we allowing port 80 TCP traffic on a Windows server? Oh, we can look at the exception and go, it's because this legacy application that we have to use requires that to be open so you can get to the GUI interface that controls it. And that allows you to really understand what your risk is. And GRC is that program that provides you a framework and allows you to really discover risk in your organization. I think in many ways it helps, like you were saying, also explain to auditors in many ways. I, I'm, when I was working in many of the banks, my boss would always get upset because I would have, he was in charge of security risk overall and include bank security as well as bank robbery and so forth. And I was uh, the cyber component. And he would he was flabbergasted why I would come to these audit meetings with just a bunch of findings, a bunch of data. Here's my firewall logs. Here's where my risks are. And I pretty much found it as a confessional. And I already, and what I think happened is what I focused on was allowing the auditors to understand what we go through and what are our challenges and how we're addressing it and understanding we had some risks and things to follow up and to self-report in many ways. And then they would add that to their findings. And then what happened is we, instead of having this adversarial relationship with audit, where it used to be my manager was saying, only answer yes and no questions. To, to, and this was inside auditors. I had to deal with out, outside auditors too. And that was a, a bigger pucker point when you're dealing with outside uh, regulators like the OCC and the Fed and a different game. But when you deal with the inside auditors, you're understanding that they're working there with you. The GRC guys are not there just to tell you everything you're doing wrong and to write up these big risk assessments and put big red check marks. And I would see sometimes it's adversarial. Man, those GRC guys don't know what we're doing. We're dealing with this and with that. And they just write reports telling how everybody sucks. And I think if the GRC guys can understand how it's we're, it's a beneficial thing, we're working together here. It's not a me telling you you're not doing your job right. But you can see the human emotion point of yeah. it, right? Yeah. I'm a big proponent of what I call embracing the red. Mm -hmm. You spent time in the military. I'm sure you're familiar with the, the green, red stoplight charts that yeah. we all have. Are you compliance green or are you not in compliance red? And if you embrace a mentality of embracing red as not bad, it allows you to focus on what you need to focus on. We always want to put up reports to our bosses that say, yes, everything's great. It's awesome. Life is good. But if I do that, then I'm missing the opportunity to say, here's the areas that we need to focus on. Here's where we need to spend money to fix our problems. So if I'm yeah. able to use my GRC program and go, no. We know there's a problems. Here are the problems. Let me quantify them in a way that makes sense, that we can rack and stack what our problems are and maybe figure out what's the best solution to get them to go from red to green. And then when you go to your auditors, sometimes you're going to have things that are open. It's just the nature of the business. But yeah, you can yeah. demonstrate to your auditor that you've gone through the process. You've done everything you can to identify and reduce risk to the maximum extent possible. And this is the residual risk. And oh, by the way, here's our acceptance document saying that we understand what it is. Here's what we've done to mitigate it. And that we've accepted that this residual risk is within our risk tolerance. And that buys a lot of goodness from your auditors because it shows that you're working the process. You actually truly understand what your posture is versus going through and just reporting green for everything. Yeah. Oh, the hu human nature is big that you were talking about. So like the red green, I was on this big project with EMY and, and I discussed it on a previous podcast with the, these two sisters, Tom Baxley and, and Josh Stabner. 
and we were on this big project when we EMY consultants together. And it was out in California. And we did a security assessment of their environment. It was a big hedge fund. And it was fascinating because we came back with findings. And by default, we put red, yellow, and green for highs, uh, mediums, and lows, and so forth. And we meet with the head of IT who these findings were from. And he looks at the forum and he goes, man, this looks horrible. Look at these uh, reds. It's red everywhere. Can we change the reds to shades of blue? And their corporate colors were blue, dark blue and so forth. Can we do different shades of blue? And dark blue was the red and lighter blue was the yellow and real light was the green. That That's the colors he wanted to go with. And it was just, okay, it's still high. It's just, okay, it's in blue. And I didn't really understand that. And then I flew home that evening and I saw my son, Jordan. I said, man, how, it was like in fifth grade at the time or something. How, how'd school go today? And he goes, great, dad, I got no reds. And I went, man, that's where it comes from. We associate red as bad and you don't have reds on the paper. And it was just really interesting to see my fifth graders mentality show up in a 38 year old director's report because red is bad. It's human psychology. Nobody wants to be bad. So we shy away from things that make us appear bad, regardless of whether it's the factual truth or not. Yeah, it's my, my job's a little different I, I, in that case is that, so in service delivery, I have 450 accounts, right? And we have different red, yellow, green on the health of them. And when's the last time we heard from them? How's things going? That kind of stuff, right? And that's general service delivery management, customer support management type things. And so you have to understand what's the health and, and you want to be able to understand your strategy. So it's it's spending time on understanding what's important for them. What are we supposed to be delivering? What's not? Are we within compliance? But we also deal with problems. There's people, clients that are upset for one reason or another. So it will turn red doesn't mean that one of my guys did something wrong. It just means there's an issue that needs to be addressed. It used to be my staff would get upset and see red and think that everybody's condemning them. Why it's turning red is somehow their fault. They almost immediately felt the blame of it. Somebody will say it's red and the customer's upset and it's going to be my fault. Instead of seeing it, okay, that's where my attention needs to be focused. My job is to deal with reds. And that's the mentality, that cultural shift I had to deal with is that we deal with problems. That's normal. Cops don't complain about going to the scene of an accident. Why? They knew that was involved in the job is that they may need to go to a scene of an accident, right? And so it's, this is normal. Let's deal with it and move forward. I, I find it when you're in a toxic culture where it's blame management, like something bad happens on the network and who didn't do something? Why didn't somebody tell us ahead of time? And when you have that kind of fear in the culture, then people aren't uh, standing up and, and uh, taking responsibility for different things. Everybody's trying to cover their behind. It's a horrible environment. Have you experienced that where, man, if you got the wrong attitude, it don't matter how smart that person is in cybersecurity. It doesn't matter anything. You got a bad culture. Nobody works together very well. Yeah, I've absolutely seen that in some of my engagements where everyone's looking for the fall guy, the guy that's going to be blamed to fall on their sword and take the blame for something. And Without exception, those environments are always the ones that have breaches. They're always the ones that have something go horribly wrong because nobody wants to yeah, you know, raise the flag and say something's wrong. Because yeah. if they say something's wrong, then they potentially are going to be the one that's blamed for why it's wrong, let alone be the person that's applauded for identifying, here's this thing that needs to be fixed. And that was... That was so against the Marine, the Marine Corps. You get, you've got faulted for not responding to threats and issues quick. Like you did nothing about it. We never got in trouble for responding too much or reacting too much. And in many cases, you, you, it was always like not responding and not doing uh, what you know is right was always always a challenge. Josh, it was great talking to you today. Unfortunately, we ran out of time here. And I think it's always fun to be able to talk about these challenges and these issues. I think GRC is a topic that I had to deal with a lot in my cybersecurity time, even being highly technical. GRC is like the glue that kind of puts a lot of these things together. I think especially when you're trying to map that to cloud. I was there when we first started having ASP environments and then uh, everything was on-prem and you'd buy hardware and depreciate it. Now you go into the cloud and you still have the same challenges, but now the flexibility makes it even more dangerous. And now your models don't always match that. And it just becomes this, this huge challenge. It was great talking with you, Dave. 
GRC is one of those areas that is underappreciated and a passion of mine. So thanks for having me. Yeah. And I think as, as things progress, man, I'd love to hear more that's going on at Tulane, my alma mater. I can tell you one thing when I graduated, it took, I don't know, three months before I was getting alumnus messages in for me to pay and be a part of the club. It was like, you could have waited. I'm still paying on this degree for the next couple of years. You can at least wait a couple months and before send me the alumni donation request. But I had a great time at that school. I'm glad that the program's still going well. And thanks for everything you do, bringing up that next generation. So appreciate having you on board. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Josh. Roll wave. Roll wave. Have a good one. And everybody stay secure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybersecurity America on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you've learned some valuable information to help you be a better executive leader and navigate today's complex world of cybersecurity. Until next week, stay secure.